All right, if you have your Bible with you, open up to Acts 17. We're going to finish what we started last week, the Sermon on Mars Hill. So this is the second installment of this one sermon, a famous sermon that Paul preached there in Athens on Mars Hill, Acts 17, and we'll read verses 16 to 34 and jump into our time together this morning. We'll cover what we covered last week briefly and then jump into our new material for today. And so here's where we are in verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the marketplace every day and with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent." Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they had heard of this resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful this morning to hear the beautiful songs that we've been singing, to hear the word being read, to hear about the sermon on Mars Hill that Paul has given. And I pray that as we dive into our time together this morning, that you would continue to be exalted in our hearts, help us to learn what you want us to learn from this message so that we could apply it to our lives and live it out day by day. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I attended a Southern Baptist church in the great state of Georgia while I was in high school. In the church where I attended, the pastor gave an altar call without fail. Every single sermon ended with an altar call or what some would call an invitation. The organ would play, play quietly, just as I am, and the pastor would come up front and plead with people, oftentimes with tears in his eyes, for those who did not yet know Christ, that they would turn from their sin and give their hearts to Jesus. And oftentimes, he would even lead the whole congregation through the sinner's prayer, praying something like, Dear Lord, we know that we're sinners, and we can't save ourselves, and we want to repent of our sins, put our faith in you, and to be, uh, become uh, adopted into your family. It was a, just a general um, kind of sinner's prayer that he would often lead us in Sunday by Sunday. And my, my question to you this morning, maybe that's part of your background, maybe it's not, but my question to you this morning is simple. Is the gospel call an invitation or is the gospel call a command? Is it an invitation or is it a command? The, the common evangelistic method known as the altar call or the public invitation has not always been around. Successful evangelists such as George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, and even John Wesley never gave an altar call. In fact, they didn't even know what it was. They called their hearers to passionately come to Christ by faith and regularly counseled anxious sinners after their services. But they did not invite sinners to make a public, physical response after an evangelistic sermon. So where did the altar call come from? When did it begin? In an article entitled, Walk the Aisle, by Douglas Sweeney and Mark Rogers from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, they address the topic, I think, in a helpful way. They talk about how many people consider Charles Finney, if you ever studied American evangelicalism, he would be known as the father of the altar call. Ordained as a, Presby a Presbyterian minister in 1823, Finney did not begin giving public invitations until long after the Methodists had made their altar call a regular part of their camp meetings. Finney, however, did more than anyone else to establish the altar call as an accepted and as a popular practice in American evangelicalism. Finney regularly called anxious sinners to the front of the congregation to sit on an anxious bench. There, they would receive prayer and often be preached to directly. The altar call was one of Finney's famous new measures that he was convinced that he could use to help bring people to Christ. He was known for kind of bringing new thoughts into this arena. And so he was convinced that ministers could produce revival by the right methods and that the altar call was necessary to bring sinners from among the masses uh, into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And while many embraced Finney's new measures, others were wary of the theology behind them. Historian Ian Murray describes many opponents to the altar call who, are, who, who alleged that the call for a public response confused an external act with an internal spiritual change. Moreover, Murray says the altar call effectively instituted a condition of salvation which Christ never appointed. Critics argued that altar call evangelism resulted in false assurance and a high percentage of those went forward to receive Christ soon fell away. 
Despite the criticism, however, the altar call continues in America today. It had become a really a permanent fixture in American evangelicalism with Billy Graham, right? You only need a few minutes to search on YouTube if you haven't seen a Billy Graham crusade in a while where he would get up and his distinctive voice would ring out after the end of preaching a gospel sermon and he would say something like, up there, down there, I want you to come. If you are with your friends or relatives, they will wait for you. The buses will wait for you. Christ went all the way to the cross because he loved you. And certainly you can come these few steps and give your life to him. And while the venue has changed from the backwoods of Kentucky to modern football stadiums and the mode of transportation has evolved from covered wagons of Finney's day to the charter buses, particularly this was common in the 80s and the 90s, I'm sure it's still happening somewhere today, but the altar call by and large has been adopted into American evangelicalism. It, it is featured today in the stories even of countless Christians who met Christ and when they, when they stood up and they stepped out and they walked the aisle. Again, you're, you're probably listening, saying, I can identify a little bit with what you're saying, but I'm not sure what you really think about it just yet. All right, what, what, am I saying that all of this is bad? Am I saying that those who use the altar call are not giving an accurate account of the gospel or those who respond to the altar call are not genuinely saved? No, I'm not actually saying that. I, I'm actually sometimes encouraged by what I see when I just see a little bit of movement, a little bit of prodding, a little bit of an appeal to people to come to Christ today. I mean, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. And at the same time, I think that we ought to be careful and cautious about the whole idea of having false converts and people being moved by external emotionalism instead of having their hearts truly transformed. I think what I'm really trying to say is this, those who use the invitation system did not get it from the Bible. In the Bible, sinners are not invited to come to Christ. They are commanded to. John the Baptist didn't invite sinners. He commanded sinners. Matthew 3, 1 and 2. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus Christ did not invite sinners, he commanded sinners to repent. From that time, Matthew 4, 17 and 18, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the apostle Peter did not invite sinners, he also commanded them. They are at Pentecost, Acts chapter two, and Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And as we've already read this morning here in Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, Acts 17 there in verse 30, 31, Paul did not invite sinners, he commanded them. The times of ignorance, verse 30 says, God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The gospel call is not a plea to see if people are interested, but rather it's an imperative not to be overlooked. The gospel call to consider Jesus as an option is not really what we find in the scripture, but rather to come to him as the only savior. The gospel call is not an invitation to try Jesus out, but rather a command to surrender to him 
as Lord. The gospel call is a command. It's not an invitation. It is a command. And last week, we looked at the first part of Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. Paul is in the middle of his second missionary journey. We looked at how he was preaching the gospel in Thessalonica, and he got run out of town. Then he's preaching uh, the word in in, uh, Berea, and he gets uh, run out of town, and he continues to move his way now to where we find him in Acts. And while he's in Acts, here we are today in part two of our sermon. Last week, we looked at the setting, the setting there in your outline where he's in Athens, and The Athenians prided themselves in Greek philosophy, the likes of Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. They were steeped in Epicureanism and Stoicism. The city was full of idols. They worshiped Zeus and Ares and Athena, among a plethora of other gods. And as Paul strolled through the city, his spirit was provoked within him. And he preached Christ and he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue and with the Greeks in the marketplace. And they thought Paul was a babbler since he was proclaiming things that they were not familiar with. And Paul was boldly preaching Christ and the resurrection, which to them was a new teaching. And they wanted to hear more about it. They were trying to understand what Paul was saying. So look down at verses 19 through 21. They took him again and they brought him to the Areopagus and they said, may we know what this teaching is that you're presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Because all they did is stand around and talk about hearing something new. That's the setting of which Paul now gets up and he preaches. He's invited there to Mars Hill. The Areopagus would be the council of Athenians that oversaw education and religion. And right next to the Acropolis was the Areopagus or Mars Hill where Paul stood up to preach this sermon in verses 22 through 31. His first point we looked at last week was this, the greatness of God, he is the creator. And we looked at that from verses 22 to 24. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Again, we love that introduction, right? There was an unknown God, just in case the Athenians had forgot to worship this one God, pluralistic society, worshiped many gods, were welcome to add another one to the mix. And so Paul gets up and says, you know what, that God, that altar that you made to the unknown God, that's the one I want to proclaim to you because that's the one that you need to hear about. And we discussed how last week that every thinking person would ask these three questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here and where am I going? Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? Scientists attempt to answer that first question. Where did I come from? And they explain that you came from an amoeba, that you came from the Big Bang, that you came from a monkey. Let's just be real. I'm not trying to be funny. I'm just saying that's what they teach, right? That's where you came from. Philosophy tries to wrestle with that second question. Well, why am I here? What's my purpose? What, what, what am I supposed to do with my life and my time? And both science and philosophy fall short of answering those questions. And then they're not able to answer the third question, which is, well, where am I going? What about when I'm done here? Science has no option. Basically, you die and you decay. Philosophy has no option unless you mix it with religion and they can have all kinds of views. What I'm trying to say is only the Christian faith 
can accurately answer those three questions from the Bible, and that's what Paul does by starting with that first question, where am I from? Notice Paul doesn't try to uh, debate where we're from. He just starts to say in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by men. He's not trying to debate. He is declaring. He is declaring what is true. And I would say that all effective evangelism starts with God, that God is the creator. I think we should say it emphatically. I think we should say it with conviction. I don't think that we should allow other people to say, well, well, I don't think that I believe that. And then we go into this long argument about evolution versus creation. I just think maybe if you want to move through evangelism, because, you know, you, you only have maybe sometimes five minutes, 15 minutes with somebody. That's actually a lot of time that you would have. And, and I don't want to spend my five or 15 minutes just debating creation. I'm just going to declare it, kind of like Paul does in this setting. He just declares it. It's, it's leaning on passages like Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's Psalm 24, 1 through 2. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. You know, God, God is indeed the creator of all. This is what proclaiming God as creator does is we just proclaim what scripture proclaims about God. It puts a person in a humble place. It puts a person in a place where they're understanding that God is infinitely greater than us, that he's infinitely wiser than us, that he's infinitely beyond us and his power. And, and, and it really uh, helps emphasize here what Paul's trying to say to the Athenians. Therefore, if God's the creator, he doesn't dwell in temples made by human hands. Look at all these temples here to Zeus and to Athena there in the Parthenon. He's saying, look, God created man. Man, man doesn't create God. God created man. This is saying that because God created them, he is Lord over heaven and earth. He is their rightful ruler. God is in charge. And if you can't acknowledge creation, then you will never acknowledge that God rules over all the affairs of men. God rules over the government. God rules over morality. God rules over philosophy. God rules over the economy. God rules over our democracy. God rules over your boss and your teacher and everything in the world because God rules over the world. This is Paul's first point. He doesn't take a lot of time to explain why. He just declares that it is. God created, he's the Lord, and what that means is he's in control and he sets the terms. And then we move right into his second point. In verse 25, your next blank says, the goodness of God, he is the provider. He is the provider. And we read about that here in verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So Paul is now pointing out the absurdity of imagining that God, the creator and ruler of the universe, should need to be served by human hands. So if he's creator, and if he's the Lord over all, he doesn't need humanity. He doesn't need human hands. Like, God doesn't need you to serve him. You know, as human beings, we always need help. Somebody helps you out, you're like, man, thank you. I depend on you. You depend on me. We're thankful. But that's not God. God doesn't need you. He may desire that you be involved in his mission to save the world as we're to be missionaries and to be evangelists and ambassadors and witnesses for Christ, but he doesn't need you. 
He doesn't depend upon you. God, God doesn't need you. I like what Job 22, 2 through 3 says about this. Can a man be profitable to God? Surely he who is wise is profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty if you are in the right? Or is it gain to him if you make your way blameless? So the question's being asked, can, can a man really profit God? What about even if you're living a right life or a righteous life, does that, is that somehow give gain to God? And, and those verses are really saying that God doesn't profit. The obvious answer to that is he doesn't profit from you. He doesn't gain from you. Even when you're walking in obedience, he doesn't gain from you because he's never lacking. He's never in need. He doesn't need you in any shape, form, or fashion. Even when you're right, even when you're blameless, there is, there is, there is nothing that God profits from. In fact, God declares such in Psalm 50, Psalm 50, verses 9 through 12. He says, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you for the world and its fullness are mine. So what he's saying is, if the Israelites were thinking, oh, we make sacrifices and we give these sacrifices to you, God, because you need to be exalted and somehow you need to be praised and we're contributing to your need to be over everything. He's saying, look, that's not helping at all. I, I don't accept that because I own that. I created that. Everything, all of the beasts of the forest are mine, all the birds of the hills, the cattle in a thousand hills, it's all mine. I, I don't have hunger. I don't have thirst. I don't have the need. He's really saying the scripture teaches that God's glory is set, that God's glory doesn't wax or wane. You know, like you talk about the moon waxing, it's getting bigger or waning, it's getting smaller. God's glory is not like that. It doesn't wax or wane. You, you can't puff up God's glory and you can't tear God's glory down. God's glory cannot be augmented and God's glory cannot be diluted. And so when we say things like, I want to glorify God, we're really speaking of placing his glory on display where it can be clearly seen and observed. When we say, I want to glorify God, or that glorifies God, that doesn't glorify God, we're not actually saying his character changes or his glory changes. It's just when you're walking in obedience, his glory is better revealed by people observing your obedience. But his glory didn't actually change because it's not dependent on this world and it's not dependent on the election and it's not dependent on your morality and it's not dependent on anything that happens. We have to understand this is what Paul's saying here. God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. God does not need us. We don't serve a needy God. All, all the other gods in the universe, they need man to prop up their idols and their ideas and to prop up the, and somehow to raise them up and lift them up. And, and, and while we still want to raise and lift up, we understand that it's not because God needs to be lifted up. We're just placing his glory on display by walking in humble obedience and adoration of the God that he already is. What we're saying is that God is the benefactor and we are the beneficiary he, he owns it all. We benefit from him. Even when we're obeying and walking, we're the beneficiary. He's the one who gives. If we ever serve God with the mindset that we have something to offer him, then we insult him. 
If he thinks it's somehow like, man, I gave this to God, he really needed some help there, so I kind of helped push this forward. It's like if you ever offer anything to God as though he needed you, you have just insulted God because you've created a need that you've met and somehow now you've added to his glory. Uh, The prophet Isaiah talks about this. Turn with me to Isaiah 44. We've referenced this here at church a few times in the last month or so. But Isaiah 44, this is what we're talking about maybe in this picture, this illustration that's given. Isaiah 44 verse 12 and following says, the ironsmith makes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. So he's talking about a carpenter making an idol out of a piece of wood. He hammers it, he fashions it, he makes it. Verse 13, the carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it and, with planes and marks it with a compass, he shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. And basically Isaiah is just acknowledging what futility this is, that the trees grow, whether it be a cedar or an oak. People cut down the tree, they cut it up, they use some of it for firewood, and with that fire they might bake bread. With the the other part of the oak, they're going to fashion an idol and then they're going to bow down and worship this idol. It's the same piece of wood that provided heat, that cooked the bread, that now provides an object of worship and idolatry for an idolater. And that passage is just saying, well, how, how silly is that? How silly is it that man would form something that can be consumed like wood into a wooden idol that he would bow down and worship it? And yet, while we can see that clearly from Isaiah 44, we have to realize that we're making idols into our own image today. Again, in our culture, maybe not a whole lot of wood being formed into actual physical idols, but we have desires, the love of money, materialism, the lust of our flesh, things, desires that we have, that we want, and we bow down and we worship those things, that we want to be liked and we want to be loved, and we want to be successful, and we want to be comfortable. We want whatever it is that we want, and those in and of themselves aren't evil, but when we desire them so much that we're willing to sin to get that, then we've basically fallen into idolatry. We have to understand as we kind of back up and look at this that that we want to worship God, that God made the world. He doesn't live in temples. He doesn't need anything that you have to offer, and anything that you have to offer is not going to truly make you happy. It's not, it's not, there's nothing to that desire, that object of worship that has any power to redeem you, any power to satisfy you, any ability to help you with anything in your life. And we got to realize Romans eleven thirty six says that our worship is to be directed to God and to him alone for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So we must acknowledge this about God in order to understand him correctly. Acknowledge what? That he doesn't need anything. 
that this glory is already, is, is everything fully sufficient in and of himself. And when we do this with a pure heart, God is getting the glory, so to speak. Again, not that he's increasing, but he's being glorified in our observation of who he already is. And then in that way, we can be helped. We're, we're greater helped just to acknowledge this high view of God, that he is honored in our coming to him and, and he is honored when we come and worship him for who he is. And, and I would say, don't come to God to give to him as if he needed you, but you come to God to get from him. You come to get perspective. You come to get good theology. You come to get his grace, his mercy, his love. You're not coming to give to him. I'm not saying don't make sacrifice, don't give joyfully, regularly to the church or other people. I'm just saying don't think of it as giving to God as if he needs it. Think of it as an act of worship that you want to do because it's a joy that you're the recipient as you give because God is already has all things. God doesn't need people, we need him. God is entirely independent and we are entirely dependent. God needs no oxygen, God needs no sleep, he needs no food. Such self-sufficiency should humble us and remind us that we're not God, but it also should give us hope. It should increase our faith. I like what A.W. Tozer writes about this in Knowledge of the Holy, this whole discussion. He says, God needs no one, but when faith is present, he works through anyone. So he needs no one, but when faith is present, he works through anyone. He doesn't need you, but he will work through you, and he's glorified in you as you come to him in humble obedience. Now, just the first half of verse 25, this simple concept completely wiped out the entire religious system of Greece. I mean, their whole system is about man making gods, bowing down and worshiping gods, and somehow that's what their religion is about. And he's just wiping that out. Say, God, that's not who God is. That's not how God works. We don't increase anything for God because he owns it all. And God graciously gives to us as he sees fit. And not only does God give to his children, but Jesus said in Matthew 5.45 that he provides for everyone. It's Matthew 5.45 where Jesus says, where he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God blesses all men even the most hardened of sinners, with the benefits at least of common grace. So we see that extended there in verse 25. And that's the second point of, of Paul's sermon. The third part is this, number three, the government of God, he is the ruler. The government of God, he is the ruler. And look at verse 26, it says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. This verse is just saying that not only is God sovereign over the creation of the universe, but he's also sovereign over the hearts and the lives and the eternal destiny of the peoples of the earth. Now, Paul declares that God made from one man, that would be from Adam, every nation on the earth. 
And this would have been a, a definitely a blow to the Greeks because the Greeks were prideful. They thought that their particular ethnicity, that their particular culture, that their particular education and philosophy was superior. In fact, they, they scornfully referred to non-Greeks as barbarians. Uh, sounds a lot like Adolf Hitler, doesn't it? Leader of the Nazi party who argued that the German genetic line was superior to all other races. Hitler became obsessed with racial purity and used the word Aryan to describe his idea of a pure German race. And it was this Aryan race who had duty to control the world. And since Greeks also thought very highly of themselves, this particular verse would have been a slap in the face to them that God made from one man all men. So he's just saying all men that are out there, Greeks and non-Greeks, whatever your ethnicity, your background is, you all came from the same man that God created. You came from Adam. It, it is God who created man. And so it is God who controls what happens in this world. And the world is not left up to chance or it's not left up to the power or the intellect of man. It is left up to the wisdom and the power of God. And it is the sovereign God of the Bible that has omnipotently decreed the history and the boundaries of the nations. That's what verse 26 is saying. Everybody came from one man, that's Adam, and at the same time, God's sovereign over not only your ethnicity, but he's sovereign over every part of your life. He has determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. He's saying that God has determined periods of time, history. God has determined the boundaries of the nations. So all of our geopolitical boundary lines are ultimately set out by the sovereignty of God. Deuteronomy 32.8 hints at this when it says, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. In other words, things are not the way they are because of the free will of man. They are not the way they are by fate. They are not the way they are by chance. Things are the way they are because God and his infinite wisdom and power has orchestrated everything and everyone according to his sovereign will. It is God who determines the extent of man's conquests. Isaiah 10, 12 through 14 says, when the Lord has finished all of his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful will look into his eyes for he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done it and by my wisdom, for I have understanding, I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found a nest, the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so have I gathered all the earth. And there is none of them that moved a, a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. In other words, again, you can look at it later, Isaiah 10, 12 through 14, but God's saying, hey, I'm sovereign over this. I'm sovereign over the world. I'm sovereign over the animals. I'm sovereign over the boundaries. And God is sovereign over your life every single aspect of your life. I love how David acknowledges this truth in Psalm 16, where he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. And then David says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. 
And David's just saying, hey, God's sovereign over my life. And he's sovereign over everything that happens, happens according to God. And I want to see that as being beautiful, as being pleasant, as being the inheritance that God has for me. This is what Paul's establishing here in verse 26, that God governs over the earth. And in that, verses 27 to 29, we see three encouraging truths. Number one, your next blank says, he is not far He is not far. It says, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Here's what he's saying. If if so far you're just like, all right, God's creator, God's sovereign over everything, and he determines the boundaries and the times. He's so far beyond me, would I ever be able to have an audience with him? Would I ever be able to come and personally have a relationship with him? If God is so big and he's so mighty and and, and Paul's been waxing eloquently about his glory and his creation and his power and his knowledge, then surely there's no way I could ever have access to him. And so verse 27 says, well, perhaps maybe we could just feel our way toward him and find him. That, that expression means to, to feel their way forward. It would be describing a person who's searching for something. Like when you have lost the remote again to the TV and you're searching like between the cushions of the couch and you're like, I gotta I got find it. It's down here somewhere. And so it's like human humanity is pictured here as just feeling out for God. We're searching, but the idea here is that we're kind of blind. We don't have really good uh, light yet to see it, and so we're just groping, reaching, trying to find something, and you might think that, that this powerful and sovereign God is too far removed from us. I mean, think about it. He's almighty creator. He is totally sufficient. He's sovereign over the nations. Yet the end of verse 27 says this astounding truth when it says, yet he is actually not far from each of us. It's amazing. It doesn't matter who you are, what kind of culture you're from, what kind of background you're from, what kind of sin you struggled with in your life, how far you've run away from God. It doesn't matter. He's sovereign over everything, and he's not far. He's omnipresent. He's readily available. He's not as far away as you would think. In fact, he's right there. Just this Last Sunday night, after we got home from the baptism service, which went late, that was a fun night, wasn't it, last Sunday night, the kids were watching one of their favorite YouTuber uh, channels called Dude Perfect. All right, how many Dude Perfect fans do we have in here? All right, look at that. In church, you're cheering for Dude Perfect. They are Christian guys. They are Christian guys out of Texas. And they were telling me, like, Dad, Dad, one of the Dude Perfect guys went to space. And I'm like, no way, man. Those guys didn't go to space. They're probably just doing one of their dumb videos. And, you know, they might have did this or that. But there's no way they went to space. And like, Dad, this guy went to space. you got to watch this video. So I watched the video. And sure enough, this one dude went to space. It's Cody Cotton, one of the Dude Perfect guys, went to space August of this year. He was on top of a rocket from Blue Origin. They shot him and five other civilians into outer space. Sometimes you might think that space is a long, long ways away. So I did some Googling there. It's only 62 miles away. So when you think about that horizontally, that's like an hour drive, you know, from here to Ventura or something, or, or maybe a little further. But it's like, you know, an hour drive. But when you talk about it vertical straight up, you're like, oh, space is only 62 miles away. 
So they put these guys on a rocket, they go up into space and they hang out uh, weightless, you know, for like 15 minutes. And then they bring them right back down. But what got me was, well, two things. Number one, the brevity of how long they were up there. I'm like, so I just got up one day, had breakfast, went out to the space station, went up, came down, it's all done in less than an hour. Done. You've been to space and back. But really got, what got me was like, man, space is a lot closer than I thought. It's not very far from any one of us. If you have a billion dollars, you <laughs> could get on a rocket and you could be at space b- before this sermon's over. You could be in space <laughs> and you could even come back and have lunch. It could happen. It's not very far from us. And I just thought as I was watching that, I, I knew what I was, where I was going in this message, but I was like, what a great reminder that God is just not far from us. We think that he could be so far and yet he's right there. And that personal relationship is available for any repentant sinner today. In fact, it's in 1 John 1, 9, that if you would confess your sins, that he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There's no obstacle in the way of you having a personal relationship. You could have came in this service as an unbeliever and as a scoffer and a mocker of God. And throughout the preaching of the word of God, you could say, you know what? I repent. I believe in the Father and then in the Son and in his sacrifice for me. And I believe in the resurrection. He's not far from any one of us. And as Christians, we're constantly told that we need to draw near to God. Like James 4, 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. The the real desire of God is to have intimacy, to have closeness. And that personal relationship through the gospel is described so clearly in Galatians. Turn there with me, if you will, Galatians 4, 4, just so you can see, again, the closeness and availability of God. Galatians 4, 4 and following says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that he might receive adoption so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Just love that. Again, it's the intimacy that God desires you not as a slave, but as a son, not only as a son, but as an heir. There's that intimacy that you can have with God and you can cry out to him, as verse six says, as Abba, Father. That there's that closeness in that relationship as he adopts you into our family. Please don't have that perspective that God is so holy, so far above us that he doesn't want to be with us. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would turn from their sins and believe in him would have everlasting life. That's what God desires. That's that's why God sent his son, that there would be that closeness with us. We also read here in verse 28, your next blank, that he is the giver of life. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. To better relate, To his Greek audience, Paul decided to refer to a quote from Epimenides, the Cretan poet. This was a well-known stanza of a well-known poem where he said, in him we live and we move and we have our being. So if you ever hear that quoted, it's coming from the Bible, so you're fine quoting it. But originally it was by this Cretan poet and, and, and really just kind of acknowledging the revelation of God in nature 
though they wrongly saw it as a revelation of, of false gods, Paul is taking that, that poem as well as another poet named Eratus who added, for we are indeed his offspring. These two quotes together illustrate the universal revelation of God as creator, as ruler, and as sustainer. And while Paul could have, and he did, already prove this from the Old Testament, he also chose to connect with his contemporary audience by using illustrations familiar to that pagan audience and, and, and connecting with them in that way. And in no way is Paul affirming universalism, but rather he is acknowledging that God did indeed make us all, that all people are created in his image. And so we can also think about the fact that if God gave you, what he's saying here is that God gave life, if God is the giver of life physically, then God is also the giver of life spiritually. That's the point that Paul's trying to make. He, he gives life and he gives life abundantly. And the abundant life is that Zoe life, that eternal life, that abundant life that, that we read about in Ephesians 2, while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He, he made us alive. He, he gives life and breath not only physically, which is how they saw it, but he's trying to say he gives it spiritually. He gives real life. He gives eternal life. And we also see here in verse 29, your next blank, he is alive. He is alive. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think about the divine being like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So again, he's doubling down on this idea of we're not, we're, we're not dead. God, God made us, he's alive, God's not an idol, he's not silver, he's not stone, he's not wood, he, he's not something that was just conjured up in the mind of man. This verse is basically saying that if God created man, then he must be more than a man-made idol. If God created man, he must be more than a man-made idol out of gold or silver or stone. God did not create man uh, to, to, to turn around and man create God. He, he created man to have a relationship with him, to save him, to redeem him. And God is not something that just came out of, again, the artwork or imagination of a human being. God is a divine being. And this would have been a revolutionary concept to the Athenians, whose city, again, was full of idols and objects of worship. But Romans 1 teaches that since we are created in his image, that all men are without excuse. And from his creation... And from our conscience, we know that to be true. Let's move now to Paul's fourth and final point of the sermon would be D, the grace of God. He is the Savior. He is the Savior. Number one, God commands repentance. This is where we started, right, with our opening um, introduction here. But God commands repentance. Verses 30 and the first part of 31 says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom, has, whom he has appointed. So here, again, he's saying in the past, verse 30, the first part, God overlooked the times of ignorance. This is just simply means that God has held back his judgment for a time. He has been patient with people, but now... Judgment is nearer than it's ever been. God is not far from us 
and neither is his judgment very far from us. And you might ask, well, what changed? Why all of a sudden this changed? Well, Christ has now come into the world and Christ has now been crucified on the cross and Christ has now been raised from the dead and Christ has now ascended into heaven and Christ is now coming back at any moment. And so the times of ignorance refer in general to the Old Testament. In general, Old Testament, Old Covenant, not every heart, every eye saw as clearly as we see post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension. And so that's a, that's a deal breaker in the mind of God. I had patience during the times of ignorance for a season, but now that season has passed and now I'm commanding all people everywhere to repent. And the change is the cross because of what Christ did on the cross. In fact, turn with me, you'll see this in Romans 3, 23 to 25, this change from, from God being patient over the people of ignorance to being more, more insistent that there is an urgency to this call. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know that verse well, verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. You see that there in the middle end of verse 25? God's righteousness has been shown on the cross because of his divine forbearance, his patience, he passed over former sins. But now, back to Acts 17.30, he's saying there's an urgency. He, you can't claim, well, I didn't really understand. I didn't really know. There's an urgency for us all now to look to Christ. There's an incredible clarity leading from creation to the cross. And now that Jesus has come and has gone, he could come back at any moment to judge the world in righteousness. In fact, John 5, 21 and 22 talks about how the Father gave the, the responsibility and the privilege of judgment to the Son. So God is a holy judge, but he's also given that that. Uh, that responsibility for the father judges no one but is given all judgment to the son and so that responsibility also belongs with Jesus and all through time Gentiles were responsible for the general revelation that was given to him given to them and now with the worldwide proclamation of the gospel Gentiles are also responsible for the special revelation of Christ that's being proclaimed to them and so the response is to obey God's command and to repent of our sins. Again, in this passage, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And that's a little bit different than what we were saying in our opening uh, part of our sermon is that people say, hey, you should just come. You should just try it out. Have you ever just thought about it? And you know, almost try to evangelize almost like a used car salesman. And I'm just saying, stop it. All right, just say, people, I'm calling you to Christ. I'm calling you to put your faith in Christ. I call you this day to repent. You say, Adam, that doesn't sound very nice. And I'm just saying, well, I, I don't see in the scripture, I understand. Now, again, I understand we might invite people to church. You might invite someone to a Bible study. I, I'm just saying, you, you, if you go through the scripture, you can probably find something that you're like, aha, uh aha, -huh, uh -huh, this was an invitation. You might find that somewhere. But I'm just saying, overall, I think what you're seeing today is like, you know what, it's a command. He says, repent. He says, be born again. 
He says, do this, and only God can sovereignly quicken your spirit, regenerate your dead heart. We know that. And yet at the same time, there's the repent. It's an imperative. Matthew 3, 2, Matthew 4, 17, Acts 2, 37. They all say repent again in the imperative. And so as we've already said, the gospel is a command. God is holy. You and I are sinners. Christ was crucified and resurrected from the grave. And God commands all people everywhere to repent. God didn't ask you to think about it. God didn't ask you to try it out. The Bible says, again, 2 Corinthians 6, 2, today is the day of salvation. It's Acts 4, 12, and there is salvation in no one else, for there's no other name given under heaven by which men can be saved except through Christ. You say, well, how do I do that? It's Romans 10, 9, that if you would confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. God is not far from any one of us, and he's calling us to repent, which means to turn from our sin and to turn to Christ. And then with that, we see here, number two, God gives assurance. What assurance do I have that this would really bring about fundamental change in my life? Well, verse 31, the second half says, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What's your assurance? The resurrection. If the resurrection didn't happen, you have no assurance. What's the assurance? It's not your obedience. It's not your church attendance. It's not your philosophy. It's not how good you sing, how great thou art. Your assurance is in the resurrection. And if you believe in the resurrection, you can have assurance that just as Christ was raised from the dead, you too can be raised from the dead. That's what Paul is saying in this very passage. So how did it end? How did it end here? Verses 32 to 34, that ends Paul's sermon. But the summary that we see here, three things happen, three different responses to this sermon. A, some mocked the resurrection. Now, when they had heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. It still happens today, right? To the Greeks, this was nonsense that a dead man could be raised from the dead. It's almost like that part of Paul's sermon is where it cut off. They were like, okay, we're done listening to him. He keeps talking about a man who was killed was made alive. And that just can't happen unless you believe it by faith. Or we also understand there was lots of witnesses to the resurrection, and yet they mocked this. Others waited, your next blank, some waited to hear more, the middle of verse 32, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Reminds me a little bit of Felix in Acts 24, 25, when Paul preached to him, Felix was alarmed and said, you may go away for the present, but when I get an opportunity, I will summon for you. And so some are like, you know what, not now, I'm going to put it off till later, but some, 33 and 34, some believed, some believed in the gospel, so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined out, uh, some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite. That's just, that's just saying, hey, one of those men from the council. Remember the council of the Areopagus that ruled over education and religious? One of them got saved. And uh, Damaris, which was a, a, a lady that was with them, as well as others that were with them as well. Praise the Lord. These two came to Christ. Others were with them. And we're saying that we're seeing here the gospel does impact. You might have thought, well, a message like that being preached so boldly in a context like that, probably nobody even listened to him. You ever been tempted to think that thought? Well, if I, if I just shared the gospel that simply and that clearly, well, they'll never get saved. 
So I got to doctor it up and I got to have all these cool arguments and illustrations all over the place and kind of weave through so they'll listen to me. Paul just came in and said, hey, God created. God provides everything. You're all going to hell. You got to turn to Christ. He died. He was raised again. You need to repent and believe in him. You think about your evangelistic strategy. Does it, does it really follow a biblical strategy? Again, I, I have approached many people in many different methods of evangelism. And, and all of them, I've just found, you know what? God's got to show up and do his work. And God works best through his word. Everything else you're saying and fumbling over yourself, trying to somehow connect and be cool and this and that. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be tactful and you can't, I mean, of course we should connect, but I'm just saying your speech needs to zero in on, have I declared the goodness and greatness of God? Have I proclaimed he is creator and he's, he's done it all? Have I proclaimed clearly the sinfulness of man's heart? Have I established that clearly in my conversation with this person? And have I told them about Christ? Have I pointed them to Jesus who alone can save us from our sins? And then, here's the end, because I would say, okay, well, I talked about God, talked about sin, talked about Jesus. How do you typically leave it? Because that's the part I think that a lot of us get a little scared. Well, just think about what I said. Well, just think about it. Won't you consider... And again, I'm not, if, you're, if that's you, I've done that, you've done that. I'm just saying, I'm just trying to say, you know what? I just want to be a little bit more like, you know, I'm calling you today to repent and put your faith in Christ. I call you this day to turn from, Christ, from your sin, turn to Christ. He will save you. You can be born again. It's all God's work for his glory. And if that's you today, you might be in here. I'm, I'm both equipping you how to evangelize and I'm both evangelizing at the same moment and saying that we're going to, pray in the sermon. We're going to have a song. And if God has spoken to your heart through this uh, scripture, my encouragement to you is I'm calling you to come and to talk to people, to repent of your faith, uh, to repent of your sin, to put your faith in Christ. You could do that this very day. He's not far from any one of us. If you want to talk about it, if you want to interact with it, I'm available. There'll be others again available after the last song as we pray. Let's do that now. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to look at such a powerful sermon, this sermon on Mars Hill. God, thank you for the opportunity to call people to repent this very day. We know that it's not about us or what we say or do in and of ourselves, but it's about your spirit working through your word. And I know that there would be probably somebody here struggling at this very moment between life and death, between genuine repentance and just worldly remorse, between saving faith and between just familiarity with the things of the faith. And I pray that you would work in every heart, every life, give us courage, give us tenacity, give us uh, boldness, help us to be faithful witnesses, knowing that that's our calling, that's our privilege, that's our honor. We thank you for reminding us of this incredible uh, sermon today, and I pray that it would continue to just seep down deep in our hearts as we discuss it with family and friends over lunch and over this week, that we would be amazed at the goodness and greatness of our God, and that we would be quick to call other people to repent and to believe. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.